0: I remember years ago across the road at uh, Rosalie Church, it was a kind of 42 degree uh, blistering day, no air con in the undercover area when we used to have this kind of congregation over there, and Ben Underwood stood up and said, I've got a 30-minute sermon for you today, but I'm going to try and do it in 15 minutes, uh, because it was so hot. And we've had so much blistering hot fun already, I may have to do a similar job today, especially so that our lovely uh, Father's Day breakfast doesn't turn into a burnt offering, Uh, and so... I may have to uh, I may have to speed through some of this stuff, but as unintelligible as my voice without an accent may be, it still will be more intelligible than some text messages that young people send today. Uh, I, I got one the other day that just kind of basically said, XOX. It's utter gibberish what the uh, young people are texting to each other today. I got one the other day. It just looked like a Wi-Fi password, to be honest with you. Uh, what on earth do these little uh, symbols mean? B-R-B means be right back. But it's the same number of syllables. It doesn't actually save any time at all. Don't get me started on www. You know we start every website, www, dot, 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 whatever. www is longer to say than World Wide Web. So I don't know why we're abbreviating these things. What on earth does it mean? It's not just me. A younger member of our team the other day thought that SMH meant so much hate. And so she was utterly confused by everyone's text messages. Turns out it means shake, shaking my head. I thought it meant Sydney Morning Herald, which didn't make sense either. But- <laughs> What on earth do these young people's text messages mean? And we need to know what words mean, what things mean in every area of life, and especially when it comes to religion. Let's just take one word that should be really simple for us, the word faith. What do we mean by faith? Does it mean, uh, like Richard uh, Dawkins, the atheist, would say, that it's faith in spite of the evidence that you may see? Uh, Does it mean uh, a hope, a wish, like every American parenting that I have in my mind, is, I've got faith in you. Uh, Is faith a desirable object? Like someone may say, oh, I wish I had your faith, a bit like they're saying, I wish I had your car. Is faith a muscle that can be exercised so that some have strong and some have weak faith? We have to get this right because this is a church. This is a place of faith, a people of faith gathered around the Christian faith. And what we have seen so far in this account of Jesus from 2,000 years ago, written by Luke and called Luke, is that faith is in Jesus. Not faith in a moral code, uh, not a religious set of practices or in ourselves. And as Luke gathered all the evidence and then sat down to decide how to order his material, I wonder whether he has compiled all of these bits together in chapter 7 to demonstrate to us what Faith is. At verse 9, have a look down. He says, I tell you, I have not seen such great faith in Israel. At the end of the passage, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, so go in peace. And so with this set of stories about faith and what it looks like uh, to have faith in Jesus, how to spot it in the wild, and perhaps what it can look like for us today, Luke wants us to see that faith in Jesus means a changed death, a changed mind, and a changed heart a changed death, mind, and heart. So firstly, faith in Jesus means a changed death. We see in these first two little stories with the centurion and the widow's son that faith in Jesus means a changed death. Jesus has finished his sermon in chapter 6 and heads to his, his now hometown of Capernaum where he moved in his 20s. And the top soldier of this smallish town is a centurion, He has a servant who he values really highly. This centurion's assistant is ill and about to die, verse 2. So the centurion sends some Jewish elders to Jesus. And these delegates from the centurion plead earnestly with Jesus. And they think that the centurion's good deeds will be able to change death. Verse 4. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogues. Jesus hears their plea, and so this band of Jesus and the Jewish elders make their way to save the sick centurion's servant. And not far from the house, some friends of the centurion have also been met to come and tell Jesus another message. Now, why is this centurion sending all these people off to go tell Jesus things? Is he lazy? Does he think he's he's too important? Has he got too much work on? No, verse 6, here's what he thinks. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I don't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Unlike the elders, the centurion doesn't think his good deeds can earn life or force Jesus' hand. The opposite is true. He thinks he's not worthless but unworthy to come to Jesus. It's like when you really fancied someone at school and and you you gave a note to your friend to pastor the the person you fancied because you just thought, I could never even speak to them myself, I'm, I'm I'm not ready. No, it's not faith versus evidence, like Dawkins. It's not faith versus sight, like in, say, Hebrews. It's not faith versus faith with works, like in the book of James. Here in Luke, it seems to be something so vital. It's faith, but not in yourself. Not in the centurion's good deeds or his goodness. He has faith in Jesus rather than himself. And only when you trust Jesus will it change death. Because only Jesus can do that. Verse 7, the centurion knows this. But say the word, my servant will be healed. Now this centurion knows how powerful words can be. Verse 8, he says go and do that and people go and do that. The centurion knows he can change people's lives, but he knows that only Jesus can change people's deaths. And Jesus, amazed, uses this as a teaching tool to the crowd. He says, I tell you, I haven't found such faith in all Israel. The friends go back and find the servant well. Life snatched from the jaws of death. No medication needed. He doesn't suffer from long sickness or something that dragged on for months. Jesus' word has power to give life straight away. Faith in Jesus means a changed death. We see that again in our next little story, in the town of Nain. With a crowd around him, Jesus passes by a funeral procession by the town gate. This poor woman has already buried her husband, and now she buries her only son. And the town is mourning with her, but nothing can console a mother burying her child. So when the Lord saw her, he said to her, verse 13, have a look down. Sorry, love, but the wages of sin is death. So death is just what happens when you sin. That's not what Jesus says, is it? He says, verse 13, look, death is just part of the life. It's a natural good cycle of picking off the weak members of the herd. It's just science in a meaningless world. (laughs) No, Jesus doesn't. He says, look, the bad we do in previous lives is played out in this life. So I'm afraid, love, you and he must have deserved this grief and sadness. No, he doesn't. Verse 13, for real this time, have a look down. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Don't cry. Now, 10 out of 10 for Jesus' compassion, that he sees a grieving widow and his heart goes out to her. But I'm not sure... Telling a widow at a funeral of her son, "Don't cry," is is 10 out of 10 for sensitivity training. It's like saying to someone who's just finished a marathon, mate, don't sweat, okay?" Or it's like popping into King Eddie's and there's a woman in the in the midst of labour, just popping ahead and be like, "Would you mind just keeping it down a touch, of love?" This is. Don't cry, it's ridiculous. Unless Jesus is able to fundamentally change death such that crying in this circumstance is no longer the appropriate response. That's the only circumstance under which don't cry is a kind thing to say. So verse 14, he went up, touched the buyer, the little carrying thing, with the coffin on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. Which is then followed by this utterly bizarre sentence. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Again, it's Jesus' words that do the work. Again, it's instantaneous. Again, it's not based on the goodness of the person in need. Instead, Christ has compassion on those confronted with the ugly reality of death. Faith in Jesus means a changed death. And of course, these simpletons for 2,000 years ago, not owning a test tube or having seen YouTube, shrugged their shoulders and said, well, another dead person's come back to life. It must be a Tuesday. Of course not. These guys saw death all day long. There's a reason we say bless you when someone sneezes. It's because up to about 100 years ago, when someone sneezed, they're basically a goner. They're going to die on the spot. So we want to say bless you as the last words as they go on their way to heaven. They knew far more about death than we do, so... How do they respond when the dead man sits up? Verse 16, they're filled with fear. This kind of power in one man is unprecedented. They were all filled with great awe. It's a weak translation. You know, in that Bible study when someone says, "Ah, the word fear, I think it really means awe, or reverence, or respect. And you want to say, no, the word fear is actually best translated... The word fear. (laughs) They're filled with fear and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And news spread. The shape of death is changed with faith in Jesus. It's no longer a stop sign or an exitless box. Faith in Jesus means we come to Jesus and say, change death for me forever, please. Change this graveyard to a garden death is different with faith in jesus and dare i say we've experienced that this last year haven't we faith in jesus means a changed death secondly faith in jesus means a changed mind a changed mind one thing that's new about living back in australia these last three years is is i got a text message the other day was very important the police have got in touch with me just me personally uh, saying that they're searching for a missing person in the Netherlands area. And it gives a very vivid description of what the person's looked like. An 82-year-old man hunched over in, in, uh, in scraggly sclo- clothes. I was have, uh, initially I just thought, I, we would not have these in England, so I was like, wow, they must know I'm a, I'm a top detective sleuth. Like, I can't find my car keys, but presumably I can find this person. Uh, it turns out, actually, quite a few people get sent this text message and, and things like that. Uh, as it was in the Netherlands area, I did text Gareth Briggs and just say, are you okay, mate? Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> But what I find, it, like it's a very vivid, detailed description, but what I do find distressing is that I wish they'd text us the next day to say, don't worry, we found them. Uh, I just assume all these people are wandering around uh, utterly lost. And, and here we have a kind of a police hunt uh, from John the Baptist's friends. John the Baptist hears all the stuff that's going on with Jesus, and so he sends two of his guys out uh, on a, to Jesus on a manhunt. G- John the Baptist was the big dog just before Jesus. And so John the the Baptist wants to know, hey, look, are you the one? Do you fit the police description of what we're looking for? Or is somebody else the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the hope of all Israel? He's having uh, some nerd doubt, Steve. He's with you. So Jesus reminds these Jews, hey, just remember the police text message you were given with the ID uh, description that you're looking for. Jews are currently looking for, this is what they would have gotten, for a Messiah, A man of no real physical description, from David's town. Uh, You can spot him because he will heal the sick, give sight to the blind, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, and good news will be preached to the poor. If you see this man, great news, verse 23, you're blessed, so long as you don't trip over him. Please get in touch with friends if you find him. (laughs) These men and John the Baptist want to have faith in Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Does he say, just summon up faith within yourselves, believe in yourselves, and it will all come true? No, he reasons with them. He engages their mind. He quotes ancient texts, he presents evidence and proof that he is one to have faith in, because he is trustworthy. The police profile of a Messiah is miracles, and so Luke has arranged around this material All the miracles one would need, the exact set you would need to be persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah. Faith in Jesus means a changed mind. So when people say, I wish I had your faith, we can respond, what you really wish you had is my evidence. So Dawkins is wrong. Again, it's not faith in spite of evidence, it's faith from the evidence. And even when John's followers trickle back to John to tell him, don't worry, we've got the guy now. Verse 24, he keeps persuading the crowd. John the Baptist was special. That's why you all went into the desert to go find him. And Jesus is even more special, he says. John was the warm-up act, the trailer, the starter. Jesus is the headline act, the whole movie, the main course. And while tax collectors and Roman soldiers and many others saw the evidence and came to John to be washed and now want to follow Jesus, the Pharisees, they're not interested The experts in the law, they rejected John, so they reject Jesus. It's not a lack of proof, but a lack of change of mind. And so Jesus compares this generation of Pharisees to a bunch of kids in the marketplace singing a song, verse 32. We played the pipe for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't cry. Jesus is saying, we did happy music, you weren't happy. We did sad music, you weren't sad. You know, John didn't party, you said he had a demon. I do come and party, you say, i am a drunkard? The evidence is there, and we gave you all the evidence you wanted, but you didn't respond with a changed mind. You didn't have faith. You wouldn't change your mind. And we've seen this kind of both sides of the coin in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, Jesus was too moral, too self-righteous, and so people reject him. Now Jesus isn't moral enough. He doesn't stick with the morals of the day, so they reject him. Rejecting both sides of the coin. Faith is not a lack of evidence. But faith in Jesus is a mind changed on the evidence. Which is exactly what our third uh, 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 thing and uh, final story has. Faith in Jesus means a changed death, a changed mind, and finally a changed heart. A changed heart. Well, Jesus is parting again in this last story about faith. He's at a Pharisee's house. A man named Simon. And they're all reclining at a table, not like the upright tables we have now, but kind of three sofas around, a little kind of coffee table, and everyone's got their head on their, on their uh, elbows, and uh, their feet will be away from the food, stinky from walking through the camel dung or whatever's going on, and dusty and things like that. And everyone's heads are in the middle and the feet are around the outside. And, uh, and houses without windows, and uh, in small towns like these would have been, uh, uh, big public uh, dinner parties would be far more public than today. And so at this meal, verse 37... A woman in that town, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet her feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, if you haven't heard this story before, it sticks in your mind like almost no other. Uh, And not just because it's the only time we use the word alabaster. Uh, It's because it's so intimate, this story. It's so lovely. It's so warm. But not for the host, verse 39. Once again, we get a but for the Pharisees. Uh, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. It's disgusting. Disgraceful, this whore. Doesn't know, doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? And the great danger is that we'd be with Simon here pointing the finger at a sinful woman amongst us wondering what Jesus is doing with her and for her. It's a struggle for me. We have a tendency towards decency. So Jesus tells him and us a story. Jesus says, "Hey, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One 500 denarii, one 150." Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which will love him more? Simon replied, and I don't know if he knows he's about to make a bit of a wally of himself, but he says, I suppose, I suppose the, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven? And so Jesus unpacks the story for the listeners with the woman still there and Simon in the room. He says, Simon, you gave me no water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears. Simon, no kiss from you. She hasn't stopped. Simon, no oil for my head, she poured some on my feet. Simon, you have not been forgiven much, seen by your little love for me. You won't do the hard work of spiritual accounting to realize you're in debt. It may not be as much as her, but it's more than you can repay. And a man in debt is a dead man. And you won't take an honest, hard look at yourself or me, Because you're too busy judging her. But her. She does have many sins, verse 47. I don't ignore her sin, but I do forgive them. She knows who I am and who she is. And she comes to me for forgiveness. She knows she has a debt too large to pay herself. So she comes to Jesus. She trusts him to forgive them all. She has faith. And faith in Jesus means a changed heart. Therefore, verse 47, he says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And if the centurion at the start is the great model of great faith, this woman is a model of great sin, of great forgiveness, and great love for Jesus. Three times she hears it. Her sins have been forgiven, verse 47. You are forgiven, verse 48. Your faith has saved you, verse 50. And that changes her heart. And there may be one or two here today, like this sinful woman, need to hear from Jesus' lips three times. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. And a few commentators highlight that this alabaster jar was probably a gift from a gentleman friend, let the hearer understand. And for her to pour it out like this, she would have probably perhaps had to crack it or smash it. And a few commentators highlight, she is saying, I'll never need this again. I'll never need to cover myself up again, to hide again, to go out there again to search for love. I've now got Jesus. And we think sometimes faith is this. Look, if you just love Jesus enough and have, you know, faith, maybe, just maybe he might think about forgiving you. But it couldn't be clearer. We are dead. We are in debt. We cannot pay but come to Jesus. Be forgiven all your debt. And that will change your heart to love him. That's faith. Faith in Jesus means a changed heart. And Luke, with great economy of words, gives a hint here of how this will happen. See, in any other room, this lady, she is the topic of conversation. She is the one who is questioned and doubted. In every other room, people would shout, Who do you think you are? And whisper about her behind her back. She'd never leave a room in peace. But in this room, notice who the crowd ends up questioning and doubting. Here, only one person is asked who they think they are. And it's not her. It's Jesus. It's like the scorn in the room, the doubt, the guilt in the room has shifted from her to him. Her faith in Jesus has led her to him and with him by her side, he leaves with people asking, who does he think he is? Whispering about him behind his back. What does her faith in Jesus get her? She, for the first time in a long time, leaves in peace. I'll pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for all the evidence we have for Jesus, that we have it better than John the Baptist did. Thank you so much for it all. Help us to bathe in that, to keep digesting that evidence, that proof that our faith may be strong, not in ourselves, but in him. And would it help us, Lord, to know our changed death, to keep changing our minds, that they would be continually renewed, and that it would change our hearts, that for those of us who have forgotten how much we owe, we would cast again our minds to who we are without Jesus, and hear from him this great assurance that we are forgiven, and with that, leave in peace. Amen.